I suppose that, that each of us can describe and remember the details of our conversion. Now we may not know exactly the date that that occurred. Some of you may or some of you may not. I, uh, I don't remember, you know, what day of the month it was, you know, that kind of stuff. But most of us can give the details of our conversion. And when we um, talk about our relationship with God, we go back to that Time when we were saved. As a matter of fact, we go back to that time when we were saved again and again and again. But it is interesting that many of us do not really know that much about the details of our baptism. And if you notice tonight that no one mentioned baptism, their baptism, and should we um, uh, mention it, should we uh, give our testimony, we, at most, we just kind of drop in a word or two about our baptism. Um, can you remember the details of your baptism? What was said and who was there when you were baptized? Missionaries tell us that when somebody outside the United States is converted, that really is not that big a deal. And it doesn't make that much of an impact on the community or the society around when that person gives testimony that they have been saved. But the moment that person that is outside the United States who has been saved steps down into the baptistry or into the baptismal waters, it makes a fantastic and profound impact on everybody. It is then that persecution begins if there will be persecution. And it is at that point in time when the people who are outside of our culture believe that that conversion actually begins. Now the public ministry of Jesus began with His baptism. Now what happened in these 30 years preceding the baptism of Jesus? Somebody with a greater imagination than mine came up with some ideas about what was going on. I believe that in that 30 year period of time Jesus was getting alone with the Father and His whole life was developing in this intimate relationship of 30 years alone with the Father. But this man came up with some interesting conjecture. He could say, he said, I can just see the building committee at the synagogue in Nazareth going to add on to the synagogue and they were in a committee meeting and Somebody said, I wonder who we could get to be the chairman of the building committee. And somebody, hey, how about that carpenter, you know, down there, Joseph's son. I bet he'd be a perfect man to serve on the building committee. And so they go down and approach Jesus and he respectfully declines by saying this, my ministry has not yet begun. It's not a ministry of building buildings. And he imagined that one day the nominating committee gets together and they need a teacher for the junior boys class. Nobody will take it, you know, you know how that goes. And somebody says, you know that boy, that young carpenter, Mary's son, gets along with everybody, so happy. The kids just love him. I bet you he, the boys would follow him like a Pied Piper. So the nominating committee approaches Jesus about teaching the junior boys in the synagogue school. And he respectfully declines and says, My ministry has not yet begun. I've not come 
to teach a class. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. And his public ministry begins with his baptism. Now, as we study the life of John the Baptist, we've come to that moment that is, is involved in the baptism of Jesus. And there are three things that are involved, a river and a dove and a voice. And it must have been a thrilling scene as you'll turn to it in the third chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The baptism of Messiah. You'll understand, of course, that the Pharisees have built a religion of, of ceremony and farm and ritual. It's a dead religion. And there's no spontaneity, there's no joy, there's no celebration. There's no feeling, just the routine of grinding out the ceremony and the ritual. And there's no confession of sin and no feeling involved in it until John the Baptist comes, the baptizer comes on the scene, and these people are coming out of the woodwork, they're coming out of the towns, and lo and behold, some kind of spontaneity begins to happen, and they're not only confessing their sin, but they're being baptized, and they're declaring their faith in Messiah, and they're repenting of their sins, and they're going into the into the baptismal waters as a symbol of that repentance. Now what on earth was there about John the baptizer that drew this crowd of people to him and, and, and got this tremendous response from them? Perhaps it was his dress, you know. They'd never seen anybody like him, dressed in a camel's hair suit with a leather belt. Perhaps it was his simplistic lifestyle. There was something intriguing about this man who had come out of the wilderness living on locust and wild honey out there. Perhaps it was because of the straightforward message that he preached. I mean, he just told it like it was. I smile when I remember the biography of C.S. Lewis and he tells about after his conversion he went to hear a young student preach and the student came to the end of his sermon and said this. He said, now if you refuse to accept Jesus Christ, you may suffer grave eschatological ramifications. After the service was over, C.S. Lewis came up to the guy and he said, now when you said if we reject Jesus, we might suffer grave eschatological ramifications. Did you, were you, did you mean that if we refuse Jesus, we'd go to hell? The guy kind of dropped his gaze and said yes. He said, well, then say it. I don't, I don't see John the Baptist preaching a sermon like this. If you receive Jesus, you may experience grave eschatological ramifications of that rejection. But if you want to look at verse 7 and following, you'll see what he did say. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for, of, for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. 
and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A revolutionary sermon. Because the Pharisees, the Jews had taught that all that a man needed was to be a Jew. And here was this man dressed in this weird attire coming out of the wilderness. And he was saying to them that nationality and and, and, and natural bloodline won't do you any good when it comes to spiritual birth. This is what Barclay says about children of Abraham. He said, they said that Abraham sat at the gates of Gehenna to turn back any Israelite who might by chance have cons- been consigned to this terror. They said it was the merits of Abraham which enabled the ships to sail sif- safely on the seas. That it was because of the merits of Abraham that the rain descended on the earth. It was because of the merits of Abraham which enabled Moses to enter heaven and receive the law that it was because of the merits of Abraham that David was heard. Even for the wicked, wicked these merits sufficed. If thy children, they said of Abraham, were mere dead bodies without blood vessels or bones, thy merits would avail for them. All you had to do was just be a child of Abraham. And here was this revolutionary preacher declaring that it will not avail. And he began to predict Messiah. I want you to look at, look at verse 11. If you got your outline, here we are. Verse 11 of chapter 3. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you. And it, if you've got your notes there, your, your, your outline, there are four things he says, each beginning with he will. He will baptize you not with the Holy Spirit. It's not instrumental case. It's locative case. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Four things he predicted of Messiah. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. It's not two separate things he's talking about. The farmer, it's the, it's the reality of which the, the farmer is the reality and the latter is the, is the figure. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit symbolized by fire. And I suggest a couple of things. First of all, it suggests that Messiah will have this purifying influence. Water was the symbol of the outward cleansing, but When he comes, he will come to cleanse inwardly with this penetrating power. And from the center to the circumference, he will will bring change. He will change your heart. And the result of that heart change will be the change of the external. Uh, The Pharisees' religion was you change the outside, you know, get the outside straightened out. John the baptizer says the Holy Spirit fire will come and there will be this transformation from the inside outward. And fire brought warmth 
The Pharisees had developed a religion that was a cold and dead thing. The religion, the ritual was cold as stone. He's saying when he comes, he's going to put feeling back in religion. He's going to make joy return. He's going to bring love and laughter again. He's going to make feeling a part of the emotion, part of faith. It was said of some kindly man that he, wherever he went, he lit fires in cold rooms in, these, in this cold world of ritualistic religion. Here comes Messiah to bring feeling to faith. And he changes the analogy and he moves to the thrashing floor. And there's this picture of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a workman with a winnowing fork. It was kind of a rake-like instrument. And they'd pick up the grain and they'd toss it into the air and the chaff would be blown away by the wind and the grain would fall to the thrashing floor. What he's saying is this, listen carefully. When Messiah comes, he will come with a ministry of separation. And there'll have to be a, be a choice made. And he will come and his encounter will mean that you will choose to be either with him or against him. And because of that encounter, you will choose to go with him and be with him or against him. There can be no middle of the road. There can be no neutrality. When, Bedford, when Bunyan was saved at Bedford, he said, God came to me and said, Will you leave your sins and go to heaven? Or will you have your sins and go to hell? Man cannot serve God and mammon. It's either Christ or the devil. And he says that when Messiah comes, he will burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And he introduced the idea of hell. What does that word do to you? Now, there was a time when preachers preached on hell often. You can, you probably, you old-timers like I am, can remember a lot of sermons on hell. How long has it been since you've heard a sermon on hell? There was a time when that doctrine of hell was thundered from every pulpit in this land. Now, it's kind of seen as a backward step of an enlightened mind. Now, you'd expect some country bumpkin, you know, some ignorant old guy who's uh, kind of noted for how loud he could shout and how many inches of trouser he walked on when he got out of the pulpit on Sunday morning to preach on hell, but surely nobody with some dignity and sophistication and intelligence at all would preach on that anymore. And that word has largely dropped out of our church vocabulary, but it is very much a part of the street vocabulary. While I was preparing this sermon, I heard a news commentator said, it's been a hell of a day in the city, in New York City. And someone has said, one columnist said, that the word hell no longer belongs in the lexicon of cuss words. Well, he said that word has been is used so often that it has no more force than the word fiddlesticks. And so it's dropped out of the vocabulary of the church, but it's very much a part of our vocabulary. What does that word do to you? When John the baptizer came saying that when Messiah comes, attendant to his coming and his ministry will be an unquenchable fire, he was referring to this. 
this subject that you and I don't like to listen to. Hell is a literal place. I don't believe it's a state of mind or a condition of the mind. I believe that it is a literal place. The rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torments in this place, he said. And Jesus often referred to hell as a place of torment. Now sometimes some people will ask me, do you believe that the fire of hell is a, is a literal fire like we know fire now? With which we warm ourselves and by which we cook our food? Do you believe that? I, I really don't know whether it is or not. Somebody said, no, that's just an allegory. It's, it doesn't mean that hell is a place of literal fire like we know fire, but it's just as bad as fire, which leads me to conclude if it's just as bad as fire, let's just go ahead and call it fire. And if it causes the same effect as what we know as fire, let's just go ahead and call it fire. What does... What do the scholars say? L.L. Scarborough said, I don't know how the punishment of hell is applied. It may be that it is figurative language, but if it is figurative language, the figure is just the shadow of the real thing. Oh my God, what is the real thing? I sure don't want to go there. And B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Seminary said, it's not my purpose to tell you what I think fire, the fire means. It certainly means as much as the image itself. Whatever it is, it must be so dreadful and intolerable that the only word that can express it is fire. It's a place of fire. Second incontrovertible fact. It is a place of unquenchable fire. Now, whether it is literal or not, that's not the main issue. The main issue is that it will never end. And so John the baptizer says, it is a fire that never goes out and never, and never burns down. It never ceases. And on the lips of Jesus, this same truth, he reiterated that it never stops, it is never quenched. Dr. Summer says the New Testament speaks of hell as a, as a place of fire, but a different kind of fire in that it never goes out and it, and it never annihilates its objects. Hence, it is worse and more intense than the fire of an earthly furnace. Never stops. In 1969, I mentioned this before, I went out to witness to a man. I really loved him. He'd come to church. Every time I preached, he was present. He was lost. And I found out I was leaving that little community, pastoring a, in a little seminary church. I was leaving. I went out for one last attempt to see him saved. Went away, and he was lost. I, I, I know that he never accepted Christ, died shortly after that. That was 8,395 days ago. That was 201,480 hours ago. And every hour and every moment and every day since 1966, he has been in 
an unquenchable fire. And you and I can go home tonight and we can sit down before our television and we can watch from guts to glory or whatever it is. We can go into our rooms with our ceiling fans and our air conditioning and our soft bed and we can have the company of our loved ones and friends. And he is separated from God in an unquenchable fire. And if that doesn't break your heart, you have a hard heart. I agree with R.G. Lee, if hell is no more than a 10-year palace without children or a young one-year palace without music or a one-year association with a man who killed his mother, and that's all there is to hell. That's too much hell for me, he said. But hell is an immortality of pain and tears, an infinity of wretchedness and despair that never stops. Third incontrovertible fact, hell is a torments, plural. It's a matter of torments. And when you read that, it indicates that the suffering of hell is more than the physical agony of something called fire. But it is a haunting memory. And it is a drastic loneliness. And it is a thirst that's never quenched and a longing to go back and do what can ever be done. Place of torments, finally. Incontrovertible fact. Jesus taught it. The favorite word in the New Testament for hell is the word Gehenna. I've been to it. Gehenna is the little, is the valley of Hinnon, right outside the city of Jerusalem. It's the, it was at one time the garbage dump for the city. And consequently, a fire burned in the valley of Gehenna where the garbage was being burned day and night. The valley of Hinnon, the place of Gehenna, was in ancient times the place where pagans sacrificed their children to the god, of Mo, to the god Moloch and they were consumed in fire. So it was the, absolutely the worst word that could, the Jewish mind could conjure up and it is the favorite New Testament word for hell. Eleven, twelve times it's found. Eleven times from the mouth of Jesus himself. Now watch this carefully. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I've come like fire to bring inward purification and penetration I've come like a winnower and a, and, a, and a ministry of separation and you've got to make a choice. I've come and attendant with my coming is an unquenchable fire. Reject me and that's the consequence. Amazing that those of us who talk about the fact that Jesus surely wouldn't send a man to hell when John the baptizer said, attendant with his coming is an unquenchable fire. Now, verse 13, 
begins with this interesting statement. It says, then. I love it. It says, then Jesus arrived. And it is as though he stepped out of nowhere. It is as though he just poof and appeared on the scene. Then Jesus arrived. At a strategic moment, at a point of time, with no trumpet blast, with no formal announcement, he just arrived. Philip Keller's book, Rabboni, he said that when Jesus closed the, carpet, the door of the carpenter shop for the last time, he knew where to go. He headed down to the burning heat of the Jordan Valley, and boom, he was there. And all of a sudden, they turned around and Jesus appeared. And the appearance of the Messiah was for the purpose of identif identifying with the ministry of John the Baptist, the John the Baptizer in his message, and thus his baptism. Verse 14. 13. Jesus arrived at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Now there's some of you tonight who will never have the privilege of baptizing anybody. Monday night, uh, Dennis and I were out visiting and we went into this home and found these two young men who were lost, maybe watching this service tonight. And one of their questions was, you know, who has the authority to baptize somebody? I wish you had that joy. And those of us who have, ever, who have baptized, you know, people, they're special persons that you baptize. John knows that, and Sam and some of the ministers here. Maybe it's somebody that you've worked with and struggled with and prayed for for a long time. I remember the old man, he's dead now, that we, had, we baptized. And we even had, we had a doctor here. His doctor had to come down here. And there two men went with me into the baptistry. And Dr. Ingalls was standing there waiting because of his health. Special kind of moment. He turned around after he was baptized. He's turned around. If you remember, he said, thank you. And sometimes you baptize your own children. I remember my first daughter, my first child baptized. She was eight years old. And we had a little country church and the well pump when it went, broke down and it was time for baptism and she wanted to be baptized. I was going to baptize her or else. So we hauled water in. The first time I ever baptized one of my children. I'll never get over that. But as beautiful as all of that is, nothing could compare with the fact that John stood in the water face to face with the Messiah. And this sinful man, this sinner, as unique as he was, took Messiah in his arms and baptized him. I'm telling you what, it must have been electrifying when he did it. Can you imagine what that must have been like? A man baptizing God, a man baptizing Messiah, sinful man with the Son of God in his arms going down into the water. Now I want you to turn right quickly and we'll be through in a second to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And when you get there, just hold your place 
I just want to look at this account from a couple of other places. From Mark chapter 1, and when you got it, put your finger there and turn to, Math, to Luke chapter 3. And, and we'll, we'll look at that passage first. Luke 3, verse 21. Notice what Luke says. Now it came about, do you notice the difference here? When all the people were baptized, that Jesus was baptized. I love that. Now here is Messiah, who is first, and the first shall be last. And it just speaks to me that that. Jesus didn't want to upstage anybody or preempt what they were doing. He didn't want to do that. So he waited till everybody else was baptized. Must have been in the evening, late in the evening. When everybody else was baptized, he stepped in there. Does, does, doesn't that sound just like the Lord you and I have come to know? Now, and I want you to turn back to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, and I want us to see verse 9, another thing about his baptism that that Matthew doesn't tell us about. It says, And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth into Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, it literally the Greek translation is coming up from among the waters. And it's obviously a reference to to immersion, coming up from among the waters, he came after having been baptized. Now back to the text. Let's take a quick look at verse 15. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for this way it is fitting for us. Underline that. It is fitting for you and I to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said, you, you obey me now and do this, baptize me here because in doing that, you and I, you and I, us, together, together, we'll fulfill righteousness. You see that? You link up with me in obedience and when you do, you and I will link up together in this matter of redemption. You, 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 you be obedient at the point of baptism and in that obedience you and I will link up in redemption and it will be us, us. See, I love the thought. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, behold, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. Luke has it that the Spirit of God descended in bodily form. I think it's the only place where the Holy Spirit is referred to in bodily form. And the dove appeared, the Spirit appeared in bodily form and, and, and coming upon Him and behold a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. Now the application is in verse 15. Now just hang in here. I want to give you something I think is exciting. The application is in this dialogue, verse 15. Jesus answering said to him, Permit it, underline, at this time. First point. 
there is a, a precise time when the Lord does unusual things. A precise time. At the right time, you see. You say, now, you mean right now, in, at this time? Yes, at this time. I have a discipleship group and we're learning how to give our personal testimonies. And I'll tell you what, I've had, I have uh, four folks in my discipleship group and when they get ready, and they're kind of scared about it right now, but when they get ready to give your t their testimony, we're learning it how to organize and structure a testimony and give it in less than four minutes. You're going to be thrilled beyond words. One of my persons is here tonight. Part of her testimony is that in a real struggle in her life, she heard this person sing, God makes all things beautiful in what? His time. There is a particular and precise time when God does those unusual things, but it's on His time. You say now, well maybe not now, tomorrow, well I don't know, but when it's time. Listen to me carefully. I'm getting ready for a sermon for Sunday. The point of that sermon, the point of the sermon is this, that you don't get right with God when you get, when you get ready to do it. It's when God gets ready for you to do it. That's the right time. And he does unusual things at a precise time. Second thing. There is a definite way in which the Lord does unusual things. Look at this. Permit it at this time for what? In this way, in this way. Now, to, to John the baptizer, to baptize Jesus was the most unheard of thing that he could think of. I mean, what, what, how in the world is it that, 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 that God would have him baptize Messiah? You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. He said, I'm not even worthy to latch your shoes. You should, I should be baptized of you. Have you found it true in your experience in life that God usually, God most often does unusual things in ways that, that seem crazy to you? You ever notice that? You mean you're going to bless the world this way? I mean, is this the way you're going to get it done? I had this little couple in my church in Fort Worth. I, I can say this tr truthfully. I believe that Bill Erdenson, from the time I met him, I sensed the Spirit of God upon his life. He's just a kind of a common, ordinary guy from Nevada. And I wanted so badly for him to be on my staff. I mean, instantly, when I first talked to him, I knew that that man had God's hand upon his life. It just didn't work out. And his wife's name was Pauline, Pauline and Bill Erdenson. And while she was there in the seminary, she became ill with depression. She had depressive illness. And she came to my office and we counseled and I, as a matter of fact, sent her to the Minerith Meyer Clinic in Dallas for, for treatment. She had terrible, terrible depressive illness. And she got 
worked through that and long and short of it they got out of the seminary and they went out to Arizona and he took a church as a minister of education out in Sholo, Arizona where a few months ago or a couple of years ago I found out that they had surrendered to the mission field and gone to Tanzania. In fact, they were in the same language school with the Lances. The Lances knew them and told me about them. Well, I found out they were over in Tanzania, so I wrote them a letter not long ago. And in this letter, I asked Pauline about her depression. And I, 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 I really, as I... I thought, now how in the world did they get a point into the foreign mission field when she has depressive illness? And I asked her about it. I just said, Pauline, how's your depression? I got a letter from this week. I brought it in here. Long letter, and I'll not read all of it. But they're now serving in Tanzania, and they're out in no man's land. They live way out on a farm off the main roads, two hours to the nearest missionary. Everybody's African. And she said that her husband, he, Bill, he gets up in the morning at daylight, he starts his work, and he works till midnight. And if you've read the book Thunder in the Valley, it's the story of the revivals of Eastern Africa, and he has gone there to take the place of the missionary who was a part of the great revivals about which that book was written, Thunder in the Valley. Now listen to this. You think this is tough. You think we've got it tough. He has, there have been 400 new churches started as the result of that revival. He's responsible for all of them. 400 of them. So he leaves early in the morning. And he doesn't get home until late at night. He stays, she says, he pours over his books until midnight. With a light. They live in a house, doesn't have electricity, no phone, no nothing. Now let me, let me, let me see, let me read you just a, just a little bit this, um, of this letter. She said, I thank the Lord. You asked me about my depression, listen to it. She said, I thank the Lord for it as it really served to change me and, to, and for me to become more dependent upon God. Up until then, I was pretty strong, self-sufficient person. But now I know that I am vulnerable and I must depend on God. And she tells about leaving after leaving Fort Worth. Now, now here, here, here's, here's what it says. Anyway, since then, I have found numerous others who are going through similar trauma. They seem to need someone who understands. Gerald, here's an interesting speculation concerning my depression and the Foreign Mission Board. About three years after we left Fort Worth, we applied for mission service and were turned down because of the experience I had of depression. They were afraid I couldn't serve in an isolated location. Then two years later, when we applied again, the board, having seen that I had coped for so long now, counted the experience of depression a strength in character. And they figured that I'd be less alarmed than a young new missionary who had never experienced depression and then encountered it on the field for the first time. Of course we know God causes all things to work together for good. Now, each day I awaken without depression without strength, with, and with strength. I count it another reaffirmation 
of his enablement to do the job he calls me to do. Now let me tell you what she's saying. She's saying that God had a way for me to serve in Tanzania in an isolated outpost two, mile, two hours from any white person and the way he did prepared me for that was to bring me through depression. For whenever God gets ready to do an unusual thing, He does an unusual thing. And so John the baptizer said, then I'll do what you want me to do. I sense God's presence in an unusual way here tonight. And I think that some of us have confronted in this little biographical sketch of John the baptizer that there is no place for neutrality and there is no middle ground. He's the winnower. He's the purifying fire. He's the one who says, now if you'll permit me in this time and in this way, I'll do an unusual thing in your life. Is there anybody who will say, of whom we can say, then he permitted him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're present with us. Lord, we know that we cannot be the same again. Whether we acknowledge your presence or not, because you're here, we cannot go away the same. I pray, Father, that there will be those tonight who will say, Lord, I, can, I give you permission at this time to do in your way whatever you desire. I pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. There are three invitations. The first invitation tonight is for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ if you've never done that. I know most of you here tonight, I can't look into your heart. The Lord looks into your heart. You know what he knows. Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. There's some of you I don't know. My question to you is, if you were to die tonight, are you sure that you'd go to heaven? Or would you be separated unto an everlasting fire? I know how you can get that right tonight. I know how you can, I know how you can be saved by giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ, by inviting Him into your life, by surrendering your heart and life to Him. And there may be some of you tonight who needs to make that step of permission, surrender. There are things in your life you've not yet yielded up to Him. Would you do that? While we stand to sing, I invite you to come.